0: Chapter eighteen of red diamonds by Justin mccarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Caroline. Chapter eighteen the affair on the embankment. Ever since the bungle and blunder at the fencing scene, Mr. Bostock had been prodigal in his civilities to Gerald Aspen. The fencing-master seemed as if he could not do enough to efface from Gerald's mind the memory of that unhappy accident. Gerald, in his genial way, would have cared nothing at all about it. His absolutely unsuspicious nature would not have allowed or encouraged a sinister thought to enter it he was greatly touched by the extreme and unnecessary amount of penitence that bostock showed as if he could have helped it poor fellow gerald said to himself more than once to him it was simply like the case of some accident at a shooting party where the gun of a friend by mishap gives you a hurt and you feel at once that the injured man suffers far less than the innocent injurer the doubts and surmises of rupert granton were wholly thrown away on gerald Aspen gerald began to take a liking to the professor of fencing because the professor had inadvertently wounded him and was so very sorry for it so gerald invited him to dine at the voyagers club and the professor came and was introduced to captain jackdaw in whom he took an immense interest as a partner in the great diamond-mine scheme, of which so much had been heard. Then Captain Jackdaw, in his genial off-hand sort of way, invited Gerald and Bostock to dine with him at the Voyagers' Club another night, and they went, and they dined, and had some pleasant talk. "'It's very funny, you know,' said captain raven on this second occasion are going to be rich in this sort of way but i say i wish aspen don't you they could make us rich i mean could give us our money as i suppose it is ours all at once it's a beastly nuisance holding on until the first of january next suppose a fellow goes and dies in the meantime then what good has he out of it i want to know unless the comfort of leaving it to his widow the serious professor solemnly remarked but i haven't any wife raven observed and consequently i can't have any widow that seems good sense eh mr bostock i haven't any wife either gerald said mr bostock became silent at once naturally the whole subject did not intimately concern him why should it here were two young men one of them a tremendous swell the other a young favourite of fortune both of them to be rich men on the first of coming january and what had he bostock a poor fencing-master at the college of culture to do with their concerns so he remained silent and the conversation changed possibly he may have noted the fact that neither of them seemed to have thought of making any provision for a transfer of their property if such transfer were practicable in the event of either's sudden death but after all why should he notice a fact like that and wherein could it concern him the dinner was early and Raven had to go off somewhere else gerald wished to leave a message for lady scardale no doubt at the college of culture bostock lived not very far from the college on the battersea side in the shadow of the church where bolingbroke lies buried so gerald proposed that they should have a hansom together to the college of culture which they had and gerald paid the fare then gerald left his message for lady scardale no doubt and the young men started to walk away together it was a lovely starlit night and the moon was shining on the river and making the Thames. With the low-lying Surrey shore, and the small trees on the Surrey shore, look curiously like the stream of the Nile. Gerald felt all the influence of the night. Bostock had lately been very silent. Come, Gerald said. Bostock, I'll see you on your way as far as the other side of the bridge so they crossed the bridge together and then they recrossed it taken no doubt by the beauty of the night and perhaps taken too by the thought that each had something in his mind which was likely to be in the mind of the other when they came again to the middlesex side mr bostock abruptly turned the talk into quite a new direction They had been talking commonplaces and the fine weather gerald had been seeing fidelia in the light of every star and the moonlit ripple of every wave. You have all the luck, Mr. Aspen, the professor of fencing said despondently. Have I? Gerald asked, and then he answered himself cheerily. "'Well, I certainly have had a marvellous amount of luck lately, Professor Bostock. I am to be a rich man at the beginning of the year, but up to this time I have had to make a pretty hard fight for it, I may as well say.' "'Ah, but it isn't that only,' Bostock slowly said. "'Not that only. That is a good deal, is it not, for a man only starting in life?' it's a good deal but it is not all or nearly all you have won more than money you have won love gerald started what do you mean why do you talk of that because i have been in love myself because i have a heart to feel and eyes to see and i know how you are favored by destiny and by her. Do not be angry, and do not think me wanting in delicacy, Mr. Aspen. We have been rowing in the same boat for a long time, although I must own, as the old jest has it, not with the same skulls. Not with the same gifts and graces, and good fortune, certainly." I say, Bostock! Gerald interposed, with abrupt and boyish good-humour. You haven't been keeping out the fog at all, have you? Keeping out the fog? What fog? I don't quite follow you, Mr. Aspen. There isn't any fog. It is all bright full moon. See? I am not clever at all, except at fencing. Intellectually, you know I am very dull. What do you mean by keeping out the fog? "'Well, to tell you the honest truth, I thought you might have been drinking a little too much at the voyages, perhaps?' "'Drinking? Oh, no, Mr. Aspen, I drink very little. I haven't the means to afford much drinking, and what,' he added, with a sickly smile, "'would become of the wrist and the nerves of a professor of fencing who drank.' "'You're right there.' aspen said and i ask your pardon for i well know how you can fence but i thought you were talking a little wildly all the same and about things that did not quite concern you yes but they do concern me bostock said gravely at least in a sense they do i don't suppose things would ever have been different with me anyhow if you had never come on the scene She would never have cared for me, I suppose, and of all men I have ever seen, I would rather you won her, since it is sure as fate that I could never have a chance. "'In the name of Heaven, Mr. Bostock!' Aspen said, stopping suddenly, and facing his extraordinary companion. "'What are you talking about, and why do you talk to me at all?' "'You know well enough what I am talking to you about, and why I am talking to you is because I do not wish you to think too badly of me, or to think I hate you because you have succeeded where I have utterly failed, and where I never had from the beginning the remotest chance of success. I am talking of Miss Fidelia Locke.' "'I'd rather we didn't talk of Miss Locke, Mr. Bostock, if you please. I don't see what you have to do with her.' "'Nothing,' Bostock said, shrugging his shoulders and turning out his hands in meekest deprecation. "'You are right. I have nothing to do with her. But I use the right of every man that lives, and I love a woman when she seems to me to be worth a man's love.' so i have loved miss fidelia locke ever so long am i a criminal for that can i help it i have been seeing her talking with her fencing with her every day am i to be blamed because i have a man's feelings and she is a glorious girl not blamed by me certainly gerald said gently this was all new and startling to him he had never known anything about it never thought of it before the professor of fencing seemed to him to stand on much the same level as the hairdresser who came to look after the tresses of the young women at the culture college but there was an unmistakable note of sincerity he thought in the words of the poor professor and gerald out of the lordliness of his own success and his own certainty felt a generous sympathy for the man who had never even ventured to put his fate to the test i am glad to hear you say so bostock replied meekly i should like to keep your good opinion i should like you to know how thoroughly i understand that i never had a chance from the very first never could have had and that i am only too glad she has given her love to you and not to that man granton well well i think we had better not talk about these things i don't know whether granton ever had any thoughts that way at all events that is no affair of yours or mine if you are at all a sufferer mr bostock believe me i am sorry for it and i think all the better of you for it and for the manly courageous way in which you have spoken about it but i am sure we ought not ever to speak of it any more no no certainly not bostock said eagerly my mind is quite relieved i have said all i had to say I wanted you to know that I understood how things had gone and that I had no enmity and that I bore no malice and that I knew well you had not come between me and anything that could have been mine because I know it never could have been mine there, Mr. Aspen, that's all about it. And I congratulate you on your expected property and your other and better good fortune as well and now i drop the subject and become the stolid self-contained professor of fencing again oh just one word did she ever tell you anything of this she miss locke of course she why man how should she know ah to be sure bostock said meditatively how should she know it to be sure how should she know it there was something in the tone of Bostock's voice now that grated on Aspin's nerves. "'I don't suppose you ever tried to tell her anything?' "'I thought perhaps she might have guessed,' Bostock said humbly. "'Women are so quick and clever at guessing that sort of thing. And I thought perhaps she might have told you.' girls are fond of telling the men they love about the men who loved them something in all this irritated aspen beyond endurance although he believed it to be only bostock's awkward way of expressing his meaning still he could not bear to hear the name of fidelia mixed up in any such talk to cut all this short bostock he said I don't believe that Miss Locke ever mentioned your name to me. Was this what Bostock wanted to get at? Was it to this he had led up? Did he want to feel assured that his one effort at love-making had not come to the knowledge of Aspen so as to make Aspen dislike and distrust him and stand on his guard against him? Perhaps so. At any rate, he changed the conversation quickly. "'I wonder,' he said, "'what has become of the man at Gundy?' "'Ah, I wonder,' was the only reply of Aspen. "'Strange that he should have disappeared so soon, when the money has not yet been shared.' Well, I dare say he will turn up at the right time and claim his share. You see, he was always a wanderer and a globe-trotter, and then he is not the only one who is missing at the moment. Where, I wonder, is the young man, Jefford Bland? "'Ah, I wonder,' was the echoing remark of the professor of fencing." Don't you suppose he'll turn up at the right time? Gerald asked contemptuously. If he is at all like his father's son, he'll not lose the chance of the money, you may be sure. Did you know his father? Bostock grimly asked. No, I never knew his father, but I have heard all about him from Seth Chickering and— and from Gundy? And from Gundy, yes. These men have been his enemies. Anyhow, it does not concern you or me, Gerald said abruptly, being a little weary of the talk. You haven't any suspicions of Rat Gundy? Suspicions about what? That murder of Seth Chickering. Stuff and nonsense! Why should I have suspicions of him? Well, people had, you know. He was found on the spot. Yes, he gave the alarm. He tried to stop the man who was running away. Why, confound it all, Bostock, Aspen said, with a rush of recollection coming back upon him. You yourself swore that you saw the very man whom he described on that very same night so i did and i saw him but he may have been sent there he may have been sent on and paid to do the trick and another man may have planted him in the way to do it do you know that i fancied i saw that very same face close to us to you and me this very night close to us my dear mr bostock you are dreaming close to us when and where Just after we came out from the college in the dark street, I saw a face flash past me just like this. I do not easily forget faces. Do you know where we passed the little sugar factory, sweetmeat factory, whatever it is? There was a crowd coming out of working lads and working girls. Yes, yes, I saw. Well, among that crowd, I seemed to see that face absurd gerald said some mere chance likeness anyhow i don't suppose he particularly wants to murder you or me and i suppose even if he had any such design we could hold our own so long as he did not attack us from behind we are pretty good at defending ourselves you and i yes bostock answered lugubriously But such a man generally does attack one from behind. But what on earth could be his motive for attacking you or me? No motive for attacking me, certainly, but suppose he were to get rid of you. Well, what good would that do him? There would be one more gone. One more? one more out of the claimants to the inheritance one more besides seth chickering when the stakes come to be divided in january there would be so much the more to get for the assassin for our mysterious friend with the shook head and the red beard oh no for the man who set him on for rat gundy perhaps who knows Gerald burst into a peal of laughter. "'Mr. Bostock, you ought to have belonged to my profession. You ought to have been a journalist. Or, better still, you ought to have been a sensation novelist. Well, I must go home, good-night, and don't think any more about all this imaginary danger.' "'It is danger for you, not for me.' "'I know, and it's very kind of you but there's no danger for nobody and so good-night i wish you would let me go with you said bostock in a curious pleading tone of voice why on earth should you go with me because it is late and dark and i am haunted by the face of that man and he would never think of attacking two people and i am tremendously strong in the arm "'My good fellow, this is too ridiculous, but I'm much obliged to you all the same, Bostock.' He hastily corrected the tone of his voice, for he was really touched by Bostock's kind, albeit somewhat absurd, anxiety on his account. "'And I know you are a good fellow, and I wish you good luck in everything, old man, except the one thing about which I can't afford to wish good luck to anyone but myself.' he spoke sympathetically and kindly for he began to think that in his heart he had been doing wrong to bostock but he would not hear of bostock's accompanying him any farther and so on the chelsea side of the bridge they bade each other good-night and parted gerald lit a cigar and sauntered slowly along the Thames embankment he was not thinking much of what bostock had been telling him he was a little amused at bostock's theory about red gundy knowing who red gundy was he could well afford to be amused at that the theory of a mysterious red-bearded assassin going about killing people systematically to carry out a tontine principle in the distribution of a great fortune seemed to him much too ridiculous even for the sensation novel this night as he walked home his thoughts to say the truth ran mostly on his happy love-making and on fidelia locke it is marvellous how to a young man the whole universe can become absorbed into the being of his sweetheart until nothing else seems worthy of a moment's concern gerald passed little groups of people young men and young women walking three abreast four abreast six abreast in loose marching order or sometimes with ranks very much closed up and with loving arms around freely consenting waists many wayfarers trod behind him and soon passed him or turned off in some other direction he took no account of them presently the embankment grew more and more lonely at one moment it was curiously borne in upon him that he had the walk almost all to himself he could only hear one footfall behind him but as he passed one of the benches it seemed to him as if he saw a man lying upon it Nothing out of the common, surely. In all weather, winter and summer, there are figures seen resting all night through on the benches of the Thames embankment. A sad study for statesmanship that, whenever statesmanship can find spare time to look after it. That all night long in summer and in winter there are men and women who make a bench on the Thames embankment their bedchamber of one thing we may be sure they would not sleep there in the fogs of winter or the blustering winds of spring or the chill nights of late autumn if they could possibly find a more warm and comfortable place to rest the fact perhaps that statesmanship will have to take very carefully into account some day a vague thought of this kind was passing through gerald's brain as he saw or thought he saw the outcast on the bench but another thought was mingled up with it for he fancied that as the face of the sleeper was lighted by the moon, he could see that it had shook red hair and a red beard. Then he smiled to himself at his own folly, and he stopped to light another cigar. The moment his fuse flashed out in the air, it seemed to him as if another flash came on him from behind. It might have been for all seeming the crash of a thunderbolt, the sharp, swift sabre-cut of a sunstroke. He was only suddenly conscious that something had happened to him. Something had struck him from behind. The cigar dropped from his lips, his fuse went sparkling and spluttering along the pavement he faced around and certainly had a clear picture of a man with red hair and a red beard who was striking at him again and again and he tried to grapple with his assailant and he fell from sheer faintness on the ground and then he distinctly heard the familiar voice of professor bostock call out you murderer you scoundrel i have got you no i'll never let you go unless you kill me as you have killed him and he seemed to understand it all and how bostock had followed him to watch over his safety and then he made an effort to rise in defence of bostock against the assassin who would now have bostock only to deal with and then a peculiarly sweet and soothing sensation took possession of him a sense of relief and lassitude and rest and he thought for one exquisite second that he could see the face of fidelia bending lovingly down to him out of the starry sky and then his eyes closed languidly and bostock and the murderer and the struggle and bostock's present danger were all forgotten and gerald sank into a swoon End of chapter 18